We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. At its core, the act of sharing food with someone is an act of trust. So as an attractant, and even if we think back to kind of mainstream religions, feasting and fasting and sharing those meals. And so those ideas were then, I think, adopted by these new religious groups. Food is essentially another language of community. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Christina Ward is the author of Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat. It's a fascinating new book that digs deep into how fringe and mainstream spiritual practices of America's past shaped modern food culture, from trends to products still in the grocery aisle today. It's a conversation you won't soon forget, and we hope you enjoy. Christina Ward, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for being here. I'm excited to speak with you. How's your morning been so far? Great. Better now I've got another cup of coffee and we're ready to go. We're caffeinated. We're going to talk about cults and religion. This is like my ultimate morning, kind of. And to start, I'd love to know a little bit about where the idea for your book, Holy Food, came from. As someone who really loves history and studies history, the twinned obsessions of my life have been both like religion, why people believe things that uh, they do, and food, uh, why people eat the things they do. And so to me, it was a really natural fit, especially um, coming from my Gen X background, that everything is kind of the weirdness and so attracted to that weirdness. And just doing the the research, um, especially after figuring out that little Debbies, especially are associated with the Seventh-day Adventists a long time ago, it really sent me down that rabbit hole of doing the research and figuring out and trying to put it all together of where does food and religion fit together in, in more than just what we understand and we practice, but in um, American groceries and business and more of the uh, smaller really outsized influential cults and communes and those new religious movements. Yeah, I think um, as a reader of the book and just as a person that eats food in the world today, there are some that are very obvious. You know, I grew up in L.A. and um, the bottom of every like in and out bag, they have like, what is it, John 17 or something like there's some Chick-fil-A that you know about. And then there's some reading the book that I was like, oh, actually, I had I had no idea about the origin of this, which is so fascinating. And and that's really a difference, too, is there are food businesses where the owners are religious and they proselytize and they put that messaging out there. Um, but the food really isn't influenced by their spiritual beliefs. Yeah, it's just a burger. It's just a burger. Whereas where Holy Food, where I was going is, where what's the food that is actually influenced a bit? And how does that look? And how does the religion influence the food and the culture and vice versa? Um, I'm thinking, too, you mentioned the In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A. Is Celestial Seasonings Tea? Everybody loves Sleepy Time Tea. The founder of that company is a firm believer in the Book of Urantia. Which, what is that? Yeah, the Book of Urantia was uh, channeled by a shoe salesman from Chicago in the uh, early 50s. And it's essentially a a thousand so pages of messages from the Space Brothers and the Ascended Masters. Okay, and what's the message? It's to drink tea? Well, the message is that um, 
it's a complicated message, <laughs> is peace and that we are manifest of a larger universe and humans are seeded from space aliens and that we work to uh, find world peace. A lot of the new religious movements that can then form into cults uh, have these elements of, you know, a fusion, we'll use the culinary term, where they just take and they cherry pick different types of beliefs and different elements and then mash them together into something new. So let's go back to Little Debbie's example for a second. For listeners that haven't read the book, can you just talk about, um, like, what about that was so interesting to you in the first place? It was interesting to me because uh, growing up in the 70s, Little Debbie's taste a little different now than they did when I was a kid. They don't use carob, um, whereas they did. There was a lot of carob in the um, Little Debbie products. They don't. They didn't have as many of them either. And carob was a substitute kind of for chocolate. And that kind of sent me down looking at the Seventh-day Adventists who – um, based on their belief that the body is a temple, which we've all heard in Scripture, but they really believe it in the sense that your body doesn't actually really belong to you, and so you really have to take care of it and eat healthy. And so they ban any type of stimulant or kind of processed e foods, even though Little Debbie's are very processed. And so they started coming up with their own foods that they could sell to their believers and make it easier for someone who maybe wasn't um, familiar, especially if you're thinking about early 1900s, uh, familiar with a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. Really, a lot of uh, the SDA follows a vegan diet. But that's really how I got started and where where that little Debbie thing started the trickle and, and researching more. You know, Seventh-day Adventists are also the owners of Worthington brand of, um, you know, fake hamburgers. Yeah. Yeah. And they also, uh, they sold it off, but they started more star brands. Oh, like the the vegetarian uh-huh. frozen foods. Yep, exactly. Wow. You know, carob to me is like the alarm bell of like a new age food fad in some kind of way. Like I think it's kind of like the, the biblical alternative to chocolate kind of. It is. And of course, the it's also known as St. John's bread. So, you know, yeah, it's it's a pretty loaded ingredient. So this was kind of your way in. How did you go about the research process? Because there are so many different kinds of like followings and like businesses that are covered in the book. Um, we were making the joke of that the research process took years uh, and five year five years of active research and writing, and it looked very much like the infamous scene from It's Always. Sunny in Philadelphia with the conspiracy and the threads and the cords. The red yarn the in red every yarn. corner. <laughs> That's what it looked like. And so it was started really with the cookbooks because Seventh-day Adventists and even groups in the late 1800s started publishing cookbooks. And the cookbooks were intended uh, to help new believers follow the diet. And it also acted as uh, an attractant for folks who were maybe they weren't going to follow, say, Rosicrucianism, but they were looking for a vegetarian cookbook. And so you could got a little bit of the mixed messages. So started with the cookbooks because I I collect cookbooks. Uh, and that was really where it started. And I could dig down and find out so much information. And it uh, it really unraveled, the for me, the whole story. And did you have any criteria about like what would make something qualify to be covered in the book? I wanted really good examples. There were far more than I included, um, but I wanted really good examples that showed the different pathways of belief 
in the United States, how it broke apart, and good representational groups that um, had a really successful food culture. So that was my criteria. Was there any, like, group that was maybe most surprising to you over the reporting process in terms of, like, how they took their belief and put it into practice or just, like, that the belief existed in the first place? Um, One of the most surprising things for me that I was not expecting and to me brought me great joy is really researching and discovering the interconnectivity between many of these groups and not just, you know, ideas but people so this guy met that guy. Um, this guy was a follower of this guy. Then he broke off and did his own thing. And so that con- connection to it, and it builds like a through line, a historical through line through all of these groups and the foods they're eating. Yeah, I think um, that's always really interesting is that things that maybe seem more separate are actually the red yarn is connecting all of them. Exactly. So like speaking of red yarn, I wanted to talk to you about a lot of these foods that we see in the grocery store aisle that originated in religious contexts. So like Kellogg's cereal, which was started by the Seventh-day Adventists, or Yogi Tea, which was started by, was it Yogi Bajan? Yogi Bajan, yeah. Yogi Bajan. Um, which one do you think would be the most surprising to contemporary grocery shoppers? Oh, in telling people the stories a little bit and talking to people, kettle chips, kettle potato chips. Wait, I don't remember this one. Yeah. Tell, tell me. Because every kettle potato chips taste really good. They're good chips. Um, that's also a Yogi Bajan company. Oh, and so— can you maybe talk a little bit about Yogi Bajan and like why this is specifically a controversial person to be associated? Yeah, Yogi Bajan um, was started off in the United States as a yoga teacher, um, kind of with a invented form of yoga. And is it Kundalini? Kundalini, yeah. yeah which is that way. The explanation is way too long for our conversation, but separate you know, podcast, separate yeah. podcast. Um, and his 3HO, the Happy, Holy, Healthy Organization. And essentially, Yogi Bajan was a foodie. He didn't have any training. He just really liked food and would, you know, spontaneously cook things for people. And he also loved capitalism. And coming to the United States, he saw that pathway to use the yoga teaching to form more of a sustained belief system and then break off um, to the food businesses. And he was really interested in making money and using the laws and the tax laws and the First Amendment in the United States to be able to do that and build a billion-dollar business uh, kind of under under the radar of uh, the U.S. tax system. (laughs) (laughs) And he also um, was implicated with, was it sexual assault with his followers, right? Yeah, and unfortunately uh, for people who do join these groups, that is um, an unfortunately common outcome, is uh, the leaders in charge um, often do take advantage and sexually assault their followers, and Yogi Bajan the same way. He had endured um, a lot of accusations, but he was so rich and so powerful, especially in Los Angeles, that most of the women bringing those um, accusations and charges were ignored for decades. And it wasn't really until his death in 2003 that the organization took it seriously and started investigating. And so today, like these kettle chips or yogi tea, are they still associated with his following? They are. Um, And because the businesses, some of the businesses were set up under the church and he really set up all these multiple or corporations, is his family and the organization, the 3HO organization, which is now a nonprofit and run by a board, they're still fighting in the courts about who owns what and who can take the profit from what. 
So those are still active companies, but under controversy. Wow. But the vinegar chips are, are so good. I know. <laughs> That's so interesting to think about. I think like to me, what was so interesting about this book is that, um, you know, when you're raised in religion, maybe you think about like, I'm, I'm Jewish. So like laws of kashrut, like there are some very like clear ways that um, belief systems like incorporate food, but then like the extent that which people were like the nation of Islam doing like import export, like the way that it gets put into practice, I think is maybe something that people don't know about as much. And I'm curious, like, Zooming out, why do you think food is such a good lens to be talking about, like, these larger questions of, you know, belief or, like, following or capitalism even? I've thought about this a lot because um, at its core, the act of sharing food with someone, of inviting someone to eat your food, is an act of trust. We have to trust that we're not getting poisoned. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be made sick in some way. And so that's where it starts. So as an attractant, and even if we think back to kind of mainstream religions, um, feasting and fasting and sharing those meals and then jointly going without a meal, um, those are such common practices to being human. And so those ideas were then, I think, adopted by these new religious groups because it's wholly American. And people are really comfortable with this idea that food is uh, essentially another language of community. And I think that's where the core of it is. Definitely. I think you are what you eat is such a cliche, but that is something that a lot of these groups were really upholding that you can be like choosing to identify with a group or to like distance yourself from someone else by like eating in a certain way. Yeah, it's a form of tribalism too, in the sense that we can recognize each other. Oh, you're a vegan? So I'm a vegan, you know. Uh, yeah. It becomes that, um, again, making the world smaller and building that community. Definitely. And I want to talk about food sovereignty also because I think that's such an interesting part of the book. Can you maybe tell me about how that guided groups like the Nation of Islam? Uh Post-Civil War uh, reconstruction period, there was kind of a golden era of the United States where the country and the government was going to try to reintegrate and integrate black people into modern American culture. Jim Crow laws um, put that uh, to pasture right away. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in reaction to a little bit of freedom— Uh, post-Civil War, and then having all that stripped away, it became really critical for black leaders in the communities from, again, the late 1800s on, to essentially separate themselves from white people and white culture. They couldn't be trusted. And so that that was the drive towards self-sufficiency. George Washington Carver at Tuskegee, um, he did brilliant work about uh, soil restorations and teaching people how to grow your own food, how to can it, and how to, again, be self-sufficient. It was about not being dependent on um, outsider culture in any way, shape, or form. And that came, too, through through Father Divine in Harlem, and then later adopted by the Moorish science and the Nation of Islam. And Nation of Islam to this day still it has food businesses and also, interestingly, works in coordination with the Unification Church, uh, the Moonies. And they, the Unification Church supplies about 80% of all the sushi fish in the United States. New World Seafood? Right? Yeah. I yeah. wrote like a big story about sustainable sushi a couple of years ago and spent months trying to talk to the Moonies about New World Seafood and no one would reply to my emails. I don't know if you got in touch with them, but... <laughs> I didn't try to talk to them, but yeah. I did talk to some of the NOI. And again, some of these traditions is um, from the early days in Chicago of Moorish science, they could get a lot of jobs doing truck drivers. And because the NOI had such a high moral standard, they were trusted by the Capone outfits. And 
that tradition of having a nation of Islam truck drivers and longshoremen continues to this day. And that's where the partnership for the fish company with the um, Unification Church. So you've got the Unification Church working all the fish stuff and then the NOI drivers um, and longshoremen transport it. It feels like the start to some kind of movie, honestly. It's like way beyond what you think it could be. Um, it's either the best buddy flick ever or the worst. Oh, honestly, I could really see this. I hope I hope someone <laughs> listens to this and gives us royalties and makes it into a movie. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the recipes in the book. Um, did all of them come from these cookbooks that you were finding and going through or were any of them adapted? So the recipes came from a couple sources. So either um, the cookbooks themselves uh, based some on research and talking to people and some of the groups were kind enough to like share some historic recipes with me. And then others um, were published in strange ways. You kind of, if you dig down into some of their scripture, you'll find a lot of food recipes in the groups that high, had a high control food culture. So there's, that's the three sources. We tried not to adapt. We meaning I had a group of friends during the pandemic. We tested all the recipes. Um, and so we tried not to adapt too much. I took out things that were uncommon uh, during, say, the 50s and 60s and 70s, but common now. So, for example, there's no recipe on how to make your own tempa because you can go to the grocery store and buy tempa now, where it used to be important to know how to do that if you were going to be a sustainable vegetarian. So you tested the recipes. Yes. I'm so curious about that process. Were there any favorites or any ones that were maybe a little traumatizing for people to eat? <laughs> yeah, there were uh, there were some fun ones that became horrible. So first, my process, culling through everything, lists in a spreadsheet, narrowing it down, getting it ready to food test, and then asking for volunteers um, out of my friend group. So a couple that really, you know, caused problems for people was some of the macrobiotic recipes got rejected um, as being flavorless. No one liked to eat those. They could mm -hmm. make them and they're like, I feel like I'm being punished for being healthy. That was a common um, refrain. Uh, one of the recipes that is in the book um, is for the Mormon deviled egg casserole. And uh, a good friend of mine who is Sicilian and is a, a chef, uh, I couldn't put it in the book, but she commented that this was the food that fueled the January 6th insurrection because it was so <laughs> stodgy and just white and heavy. It was just, for her, it represented that. Okay. So what about some that maybe people liked? Um, one of the perennial favorites was from Tassajara, which is, that's an easy one because they have a great food system out in San Francisco. It's associated with the San Francisco Zen Center. So the Tassajara um, shortbread cookies, fantastic. Unlikely ones that are great is from late 1800s, Bishop's Hill, the cardamom horns. That's one of my favorites. So what is a cardamom horn? And it's, uh, people may recognize it. It's more of a European style of pastry, rolled um, like a croissant, a little bit curved, and but in, it has a cardamom flavor to it. And it, it's very lightly sweet and it's a yeasted dough. So kind of like a crescent roll, a sweeter crescent roll. That does sound really good as like a breakfast pastry. Yeah, anything. I had a yeah, I had a conversation with uh, Beetle and Hollis, who bakes a lot of historic recipes. He had a book baking yesteryear that came out this year, and he has a lot of recipes that are quite good. And then a section that's called Worst of the Worst that are kind of these traumatizing recipes. And we were talking about like this debate of like whether or not to include something that like 
isn't actually going to be good and you know that it's not going to be good because it kind of is a cultural or historic artifact still that Mm -hmm. people were making that at that point in time. Did you have any debate over like the recipes that maybe like weren't as delicious? Like why would I publish this in the first place? Yeah, I, I mention it in writing my little introduction because that is a common question. It, I thought it would be too easy to kind of do the point and laugh of like, look at this ridiculous thing. You know, why would anybody eat that? It's horrible. Uh, so I chose not to include those. But I will say the worst one, and I, it was so terrible, it actually made me gag. It hit the trifecta of badness. Of it, The color was awful. Just baby poop gray. Ugh. And the texture was kind of kind of mushy, mealy, and um, the flavor was kind of it, dirty and acrid, you know, kind of this dry dirtiness. It was so strange. And it was from the True Light Beavers, and it was a mushroom-based, um, like, vegetarian pate. From the ingredients list, and anybody who cooks knows does this, you can read through an ingredient list, and you kind of get an idea of what it's going to taste like. Yeah. Mushroom pate, that could be great. It could be great. I read it. Uh, that could be great. It was not. Um, it was so not great. I actually asked a couple other friends, test this one. Is this just me? Did I do it wrong? Did I get a bad batch of something? And No, everybody agreed. It was horrible. (laughs) So when there is like a recipe that just doesn't taste good, like do you think they knew that it didn't taste good and they didn't care or was it almost like hazing that you had to eat this thing that didn't taste good? Like why would groups be sharing their recipes that just frankly don't measure up? I think it, it, there's a couple of different reasons. Yeah. Some of it is based on a, a bad tasting recipe is core to a group's belief. Um, I'm thinking of Adi Dom and their green smoothies. They, um, a very extreme restricted group on what they ate. And it's just essentially like a kale smoothie, not even a really any apples or anything to balance it out. And it's just, it's not good. It's not really good. Um, but that's what they ate. Uh, because that was part of the practice. Whereas other groups were also reflective of the culture. So especially ones from the 70s, you see like the nascent health food movement kind of growing in there. And so to modern tasters, they taste a little off because you'll get cookies with no sugar at all. And, you know, we want a little bit of sugar. Or um, Nation of Islam recipes tend to be a bit bland because uh, they don't use salt. Why not? Um Elijah Muhammad, who wrote Eat to Live and really kind of outlined the food culture in the NOI, felt that salt made um, bodies sluggish. And it was part of the conspiracy from the white people to keep black people down and oppressed. Okay, so so no salt in anything then? No salt, minimal. Sometimes, you know, people would do it, but it was always like under the table. Try not to use the salt. Wow, that's so fascinating. And I think, you know, we've talked about recipes uh, and diet maybe, but I feel like the book also talks about food trends and fads that kind of like originated in these groups. Is the macrobiotic diet an example that comes to mind for you? Oh, right away. Um, I think and a lot of people don't even understand or know that it really originated from a very specific movement. Uh, It comes out of the late 1800s again, this German tradition called nature men. And it's where we get this idea of like Rudolf Steiner and um, biodynamic farming. That whole movement came out of Germany and spread around the world. And Georgia Schauer uh, combined 
those ideas with some very traditional Japanese healing food um, ideas and came up with this macrobiotic diet. And it was also rigid in some of the beliefs. They were, you, you know, you couldn't, you weren't supposed to drink at all. And you had other restrictions if you were truly following that diet. So just to go back a second, what was the Nature Man uh what was that? <laughs> so it was a, a cultural reaction in Germany, um, kind of a post-industrial revolution. And I mean, not not the 17th, but the later one. You've got all this industrialization and factories and people are disconnected from the from nature. And that's really what nature meant. And people were going outside and making that like clubs and practices, von der Vogel. People would just hike for days. Um, and this idea of a embracing um, the connection to nature. And that's the core of it. And exported to France and then, of course, to the United States, especially to California. Yeah. I think growing up in California, like even way after that period of time, there's still a lot of macrobiotic places. And, you know, here in New York, uh, there's like Suen, for example, which is a great uh, Japanese restaurant that's very like macrobiotic. And just I think as someone that thinks about contemporary food trends, I see the macrobiotic diet as kind of setting up the era of the all-day cafe that we have today even in terms of these like hearty brown rice squash grain bowl. Like that's something that could be at a trendy restaurant but also was kind of rooted in those practices it, beforehand. It absolutely is. Um, and I think – and that's some of those trends. The culture influences things. And again, people are unaware that it may have some sort of religious or spiritual background. I'm looking at a lot of the vegan restaurants, especially in the black community, that um, – it's fantastic. The food's usually always really good. Uh, but a lot of folks start the vegan restaurants for the food trend, for the fad, because veganism is becoming a fad. But how it even got to a point to become a fad was because a number of these religious and spiritual and cult groups adopted vegan diets, started restaurants that were serving f that food to everybody. And that's how it starts to catch on. It's very much a word of mouth thing. Yeah. I'm curious if there are any other contemporary food trends or things that you see happening that you can trace back to kind of these earlier origins. Um, I see, you know, as you pointed out, some of what we call, you know, the health food, the brown rice, yeah. the less processed. Um, and that's kind of that intersection, too, of the 70s with uh, Jonathan Kaufman did such fantastic work with his book, Hippie Food, mm -hmm. really tracing back how that health food thing came about. And so I think what we see as a, a modern on the grocery shelves is um, a more blatant, if you will, a more outrageous statement of belief. So now where groups were just trying to kind of send the message in, um, more groups are being more outward, like in and out Burger, that they're, it's become a proclamation of belief and on the food. And that's where I see it. So it's more of a marketing change trend I'm seeing than an actual on the grocery stores trend. Yeah, it's interesting. And to me, like uh, going into a Whole Foods or an Erewhon, for example, like there are also on the flip side, uh, like what's the, there's like a popcorn. There are all these things that use like Buddha bowl as like part of their marketing. And, and actually like maybe they aren't affiliated with a religious group versus like the Yogi Tea, which does have that origin. It's, it's almost like, um, that has become a marketing trend, even if it's not rooted in their real life practice. Um, absolutely, because um, it, it's become representational and then meaningless. Mm. Um, so we think about the Buddha bowl is a great example. Uh, we think of Buddha and that means peaceful, meditative, and, and that means healthy, and especially in the trend of like mindfulness and mindful eating. So did Buddha eat Buddha bowls? No, no. <laughs> he, he 
had his one meal a day that they had to beg for. That was the monastery tradition. Um, and they weren't really always vegetarian because you had to beg for the food. And so you, ha- and you had to eat everything that was given. Um, that is the antithesis of kind of this modern marketing health food using um, Buddhist style phraseology and imagery. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, we're talking about all these different food trends and fads. Like what's a religious or spiritual food trend from the past that you think is like actually good? And then what's one that you think like maybe we should keep in the past? Um, I'm really fascinated to uh, what it's called the Blue Zone Study. Um, Mm, And they've been doing it for years. And the healthiest people in the United States are in Loma Linda, California, which is uh, a center of Seventh-day Adventist activity. Yes. And they're following this very um, exercise-forward vegan diet, and they're super healthy. That is a trend. Again, the fad, they started in the early 1900s, and science has proven that is a really great healthy diet to follow. That one we should probably look closer at and look at the SDA and what they're they're eating and doing. Yeah. Same thing with Nation of Islam. If you actually look at the food that's recommended uh, by the Nation of Islam in Eat to Live, that is a really healthy diet. I like both of those. And just like additional context on the blue zones is that there are five geographical zones around the world where people live the longest, have the highest population of sect. Centarians. Oh, Centarians. Thank you. I was like, I'm scared to pronounce that <laughs> one. Um, but that the the only group in the U.S. that falls into this category are these Seventh-day Adventists. So it's not even that it's just good for America. It's that like in this whole global survey, they are one of the groups that's living the longest. Yeah, they are. And And they know this, obviously. And that's part of their marketing in some way even that like you will be have a long and healthy life you will have a long and healthy life and if you have a long and healthy life and you keep your your carcass you know as yeah. clean and pure as possible you know that makes you holier than thou i mean that to use kind of a, a sassy phrase uh but that is the goal of seventh day adventism to keep the purity and uh, so that you're welcomed into heaven by god Okay, so that's that's a good one. And then maybe what's one that is going to stay in the past? Um, the ones that I think should stay in the past are uh, the ones, and of course, they're much earlier, uh, and they're the ones that are super meat heavy. And so if you look at like back to, and, and again, it's more of a reflection of German cuisine than anything else from the German pietists. And so some of those early, um, say, Hutterite, Mennonite, Amish, um, the Harmonists, the Amana, those are all of the same kind of ilk. Um, I included a few recipes from them, but at the same time, we should never go back to that kind of diet. It's just, <laughs> we don't work that hard to burn off that many calories anymore, and it's just really not healthy. Yeah, I really appreciate you mentioning, like, the way that people's uh, just kind of behavior and practices fit into the diet, because it is true that if you were, like, working in the fields all day, you probably need a lot more uh, meat and just all of those heavier things than, like, the modern lifestyle we have now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I'm curious, have you changed anything about your own diet after reporting this? So what's an interesting thing that happened to me personally during the midst of all this um, research and everything is I'm from Wisconsin, and in 2019, I got really, really sick, and I had, turns out, I had a bunch of tick-borne diseases. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, I'm better now. Good. But I've got alpha-gal, which if um, listeners are familiar or not familiar, it is um, a meat protein allergy that can develop. Um, after having tick-borne diseases. And I've got that. So that's the thing that really changed. It made me look really hard at the impact of meat consumption 
um, on bodies, as well as uh, a really fresh look at vegetarian uh, the the groups that were really advocating for vegetarianism. So that's the one thing that really helped me and change. And so I tended to, um, in the guise of testing recipes, explore a lot more out of those old vegetarian cookbooks. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about. I mean, it's like modern vegetarian cooking has come such a long way. And there's so many like groups around the world with like vegetarian food traditions that we can look to. But I think looking at the way that people were teaching vegetarianism to people that maybe weren't familiar with it is an interesting way to kind of center yourself. So it was my my way back into food. Definitely. Okay, so when you were writing, do you have any food snacks or are you not snacking and writing at the same time? Um, prosnactication, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> prosnactication, is that when you're buying the snacks or eating the snacks? Um, that's when you're getting up to go get more snacks when oh, you should yeah. be writing and then you're snacking. So I'm I am familiar with that. Yeah, I've got a sweet tooth. And so it finally... Um, I finally isolated myself and I'd pack myself a little snack bag so I didn't get up and leave my desk and keep working. Um, and so usually I would give myself a couple pieces of chocolate. Um, I, a peanut butter pretzels are mm. fantastic for just a little bit of an energy boost. Um, and then the wide variety of Middle Eastern from the Levant candies with the, the kind of nut and honey candies. Oh, I love those. I love those. Those were just kind of, I sustained. That was my diet for a while. Okay, I might try that snack bag mixture. It sounds like a winner. I might add some kettle chips. I'm scared to say after this conversation, but I feel like the salty sweet is my go-to. It, it's good. And I, I'll recommend pre-packing your snacks so you don't um, go off and uh, snack yourself into a coma when you're taking your kitchen break. Yeah, and you can't, you can't go back so many times. Exactly. Okay. Well, so to close, I want to do a little rapid fire taste check with you. So I'll give you some categories and you can just kind of tell me the first thing that comes to mind, if that sounds good. Yes. Okay. Um, favorite contemporary cookbook? Um, Joy of Cooking and the Settlement Cookbook are my go-tos. They're like kind of the mother cookbooks and I find myself using those more than anything. Okay. I love that answer. Maybe Settlement is your historic cookbook, but do you have a favorite historic cookbook, maybe from the research process? Um, I've been actually going back and using the Rosicrucian cookbook. They have some really interesting um, vegetarian recipes. Do you remember what it's called? Um, it's just called the Rosicrucian oh, cookbook. Great. Okay. <laughs> the Rosicrucian yeah. cookbook. Okay. Favorite bookstore? Oh, I, I work in books. And so I have favorite bookstores all over the country. Um, back hometown, Milwaukee, Lion's Tooth and Boswell. Book Soup in Los Angeles, fantastic. Um, uh, Quimby's in Chicago, X Island, Bookville in Chicago, uh, Archistratus, Kitchen Arts and Letters, and Bonnie Slotnick in New York. Ooh, hitters all the way uh, down. I love them. Okay, favorite quote-unquote religious food? Um, my favorite religious food turned out to be the Hare Krishna's Burfi, their version of coconut burfi. Okay, I have to do a side note to say that growing up after going to like synagogue in LA, we would go to the Hare Krishna temple to get lunch afterwards because it's right down the block and they had a great vegetarian lunch, which to me is the ultimate like LA Jewish experience is going to the Hare Krishna temple afterwards. And it's fantastic, uh, you know, and again, little side note, is the Haris had a huge influence in New York on um, New York hardcore scene. Well, wait, tell me more. So most of the guys who were kind of instrumental to the New York hardcore scene um, were, you know, rotten kids who were squatting on the Lower East Side. And it was down the block from the Hare Krishna temple, mm -hmm. that free meal every day. And the guys would just go and eat every day 
at get the free meal from the Haris. Um, and if you talk to them, they don't, they're not, not many of them are, are conscientious Hari Krishna followers, but they all have incorporated some of the language and some of those ideas. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. Favorite bar? My favorite bar is Trader Nick's Tiki Bar in Cudahy, Wisconsin. It is actually a neighborhood tiki bar, not a tourist tiki bar. Oh, Wisconsin has the best neighborhood bars also. Um, it is part of our culture. <laughs> it is the culture. <laughs> favorite bakery? Um, I have a lot of favorite bakeries too, but I've really um, been a fan of a little bakery, again, in Milwaukee, where I live, is called Bakehouse 23. Why I like it is she's taking American and really carving out this idea of American bakery. So many people are just following French traditions or English traditions. She's really trying to redefine American baking and leaning into the fun and goofiness of it, but also pulling back some of the sugar. That's always my complaint with modern bakeries is everybody's using way too much sugar. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. Too sweet. If if it's too sweet, you can't taste anything. <laughs> okay. A restaurant you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant. I was thinking about this because... Um, on, I love on Mulberry Street, all just like the little corner red sauce joints. Yeah. I don't have one of those. I wish for one of those. I want a corner neighborhood red sauce joint. I, the red sauce joints are such a New York classic. I'm going to manifest that one for you. Thank you. And then to close, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat. I'm giving you the first one that pops in my head, and that's that great dining room scene from Gosford Park. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. It's one of those, you know, kind of sprawling, you know, English kind of contemporary. If people like Downton Abbey, they're going to like Gosford Park, but it's darker. Um, But it's like that old, you know, kind of we think of the aristocracy, early 1900s, the multi-course over-the-top dinner. And I've never experienced that. That was my first one that popped in my head. Just to live through that and eat it once, you know. I'll have to check it out after this. And this was such a fun conversation, Christina. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I love talking about food and Cults. Me too. (laughs) This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.